I appreciate your presence here today, and I, I realize our congregation is small, and the weather is cold and wet, and sometimes uh, that causes us to wonder and doubt. But I'm praying that God will bless His Word to us. I've been praying for quite a while, actually, about the messages that we want to bring. And um, last night I enjoyed our study of God's Word. It's a, a great foundation uh, for everything that we're going to be teaching, not only from the uh, New Testament Scripture, but from the Old. In Psalm chapter 85 last night, we turned our attention to some of the principles that are associated with true revival. We discovered that, you know, revival is not something you can schedule. It's not something you can fabricate. I know that in our culture, especially in America, many times we associate revival with emotion or uh, instrumentality. or That's why you, you see so many uh, churches going to many different forms of entertainment in order to try to generate revival. But we know from God's Word that true revival is something that God blesses us with and the desire of God's people, as David said in Psalm 85, verses 4 through 7, Turn us, O God, of our salvation and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what the Lord God will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh unto them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Last night we tried to show the connection between mercy and revival. And that the purpose of revival is not to make us prosperous, not to make us happy, not to make us comfortable, not to benefit us as much as it is for the glory of God. That's what's at issue. That ought to be the heart of each one of us. How can I glorify God? How can I bring glory to the name of the Lord? Remember Jesus said in Matthew 5:16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Last night we also asked you to turn with us to Isaiah chapter 55, and uh, we read verses 6 through 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We see that this mercy of revival that comes to us from God and from God's presence is manifested or demonstrated in four particular areas that we mentioned last night. First, in the sending of Christ, in the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ in human form. Secondly, in the salvation of sinners. Thirdly, in the sanctification of the saints. And fourthly, in the sincere pursuit or seeking after God. You see, if we're not seeking after God through His Word this morning, we cannot expect revival to occur. We can't expect it to happen in our lives. Now, this morning, I'm going to ask us to turn our Bibles together. We want to read together from the book of Isaiah, chapter 64. 
And what we're going to title our study this morning with from the Old Testament Scripture is the presence of the Lord. When we're talking about revival, we're talking about the manifest presence of God in our midst. And it's not only His power that's under consideration, but it's also His presence in the gifting of faith to believe in Christ and the gifting of repentance to turn from our sins and follow the living God. And to me, this is one of the most powerful revival prayers in the Old Testament. We could go to the language of Daniel, to the language of Nehemiah and David, and find powerful prayers for revival. But this one, this one uh, to me sets in motion the true characteristics, the nature of revival itself, that it is the presence of God in the midst of his people. Listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 64. And when I get down to verse 8, I'm going to ask you to read that out loud with me, okay? Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. Now, I want you to underline the word presence there. We're going to find it three times in this chapter. He's focusing upon the presence of God. Now, watch this. When thou didst terrible things which we look not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. Now, he's meeting with people here. He's meeting with those uh, in mercy that seek or pursue him in his righteousness. Behold, thou art wroth. Angry, for we have sinned, in those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. Now read with me. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father. We are the clay, and thou art the potter, and we are all the work of thy hand. You see, what I believe he is discussing here in this great prayer is actually twofold. Number one, that the presence of God might come in judgment upon the enemy, upon the enemies of God, upon those that oppose the truth of Christ, those that oppose the church, those that oppose the preaching or the proclamation of the gospel. He's asking God's presence to come down in judgment against the wicked. But he's also asking for the presence of God to come among his people that he might meet with us, that he might come uh, together with us and accept the praises and worship that we bring. So he says, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens. This is very pictorial language that describes what Israel saw in the Mount Sinai. What they saw 
in the book of Exodus, remember when they came to Mount Sinai, what they saw was the demonstration of God's presence. His presence was in the quaking of the earth. His presence was in the, the lightning. And remember the clouds and the whole mountain shook. And, and Moses was to go up into the mountain that he might meet with God, not only in his own behalf, but as an intercessor for the people of Israel. Remember their attitude? They said, Moses, we're not going up there. If we go up there, we'll die. See, they, they had a recognition of their own sinful condition. But Moses, you go up and you speak to God in our behalf. It's interesting. It's interesting that this language goes back to that time when the very heavens were rent. They were opened. And God, in his august glory, would come down into that mount. And he would hide or veil his face, as it were, with the clouds around the mount. Now, the people of Israel knew that God was in the mount. His presence was demonstrated in the mount, but they were afraid of him. They were afraid to meet with God. And the reason they were afraid is because they recognized their own sinfulness. They recognized the great divide between us and God is always related to our sin, whatever that sin is. Last night we talked about some of those sins, pride. We, we talked about laziness. We talked about uh, slothfulness. We talked about uh, covetousness. We talked about various forms of idolatry where we're serving ourselves rather than God and very unconcerned about God's judgment. All of those sins come into play when we're begging God for revival. See, so we've got to be serious with God and not playing games with God or His church if we're ever going to expect revival. It's interesting, the three mentions of presence here in this particular chapter, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, verse 1, and uh, that the nations may tremble at thy presence, verse 2. And then notice verse 3, the mountains flow down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world, verse 4, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he, God, hath prepared for him that waiteth for God. You know, we're going to talk about that more this evening, about waiting for the promise of God's presence. But do you remember the attitude of uh, Moses when he was challenged by God? He was challenged to, to take the children of Israel into the land of Canaan, and God said, I'm going to be with you, and uh, my presence is going to go with you. Do you remember his response to God? He said, if thy presence go up, uh, go not up with us, carry us not up from hence. Don't let us take a step. Don't let us advance one day without your presence with us. He recognized the need for the presence of God, for God's glory, for God's enabling power to be with him and the children of Israel if they were ever going to make it to Canaan. Very interesting. Very interesting language. Now turn back to Isaiah 6. <clears throat> In Isaiah 6, we, we find the actual calling of Isaiah to the office of prophet, prophet in Israel. We, we find that it occurs at a very dramatic time in the history of Israel when King Uzziah died. If you and I were to have a blackboard this morning and talk about periods of revival in the ancient history of Israel, Uzziah would be one of those. Uzziah, who reigned for 52 years in Israel, Israel experienced a great degree of reviving under his leadership. We would also notice Josiah. We would also notice Hezekiah. We would also notice Jehoshaphat. We would also notice Josiah. We would notice that during these particular periods of revival, there were things consistent 
there were things that happened that brought about revival. And I believe Isaiah captures that in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, verse 1, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne. Now, this is comforting to us because we know that kings rise and fall, men live and die, pastors come and go, but God is still on His throne. In all of the changing events of time, God is still on His throne. I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Now that when he's talking about a train, he's not talking about choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo train. You know, he's not talking about a a train that way. He's talking about a a train on the gown that was often on the outer uh, garment of a king. And many times a king's wealth and, and his popularity and his prosperity was reflected by the length of his train, by what was included in his train. Many times they would take um, rubies and diamonds and gold and they would weave it into the train of the king. And this brought glory to the king. Well, when the view, the vision of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, his train filled the temple. It was not a short train. It was not a medium train. It was a, a, a train that actually filled the whole meeting place of the sanctuary of the temple. Tremendous glory here. Above it stood the seraphim. These are angelic beings, powerful, powerful beings. Each one had six wings. With two of those wings, they covered his face. With two of the wings, they covered the feet. And with two, they did fly. To me, uh, this is reflective of their position. They They are flying over the throne of God that Isaiah is seeing in vision. He's seeing in the Spirit. And they're flying over the top of it, but he notices that two of their wings are covering the face, which is an act of reverence. They, they were not worthy to look into the full glory of God. They covered their face. Uh, with two wings, they covered their feet, which reminds us of their creative, uh, they were creative beings. They, they, were, they were acknowledging their creatureliness. They were acknowledging their inferiority to God. They were unworthy to walk in the presence of God. And then with two wings they they flew, which I believe is very symbolic in essence of of worship and praise. In all that they were doing, they were acknowledging the presence of God, the power of God, and the promises of God were contingent upon the glory that God derives from them. The presence, the power, and the promise of God is actually contingent, dependent upon, upon what glory is derived by God in the exercise of those attributes. Follow me? He says, And one cried, in verse 3, And one cried to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of what? What is the whole earth full of? Full of His glory. Now, I use verses like this to defend the Trinity. You know, as though they're saying, Holy Father, Holy Son, a Holy Spirit. But I really don't think that's thrust of why why they're saying holy three times. I, I really believe, and, and the same way in uh, the book of Revelation, I really believe what they're doing in that uh, repeated appellation of the holiness of God, what they're showing in that is, we have some mathematicians, some smart guys here, if you were to take anything to the third power, if we were to take 10 to the third power, how many would that give us? 10 to the third power would be 1,000, right? And in the, in the Jewish mindset, anything raised to the third power 
signifies perfection or completion. That, that's all the way through the Scripture. We could go to many verses to prove that. For instance, the Holy of Holies, the very place where the Ark of the Covenant was, was placed. Does anybody remember the dimensions of that? It was ten cubits by ten cubits by ten cubits. It was ten cubed. It was ten cubits wide, ten cubits long, and ten cubits high. And that's significant in the Jewish mindset because that emphasized the perfection that pertained to God. So what Isaiah is seeing in this vision is the utter perfection that is associated with God and His glory. He knew that all of the promises of God relate to His glory. He's going to execute His promises for His own glory. He's going to execute His power for His own glory. And He's going to bring His presence into the midst of His people for His glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Then He says, I love this language, the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. This is the, the smoke or the cloud is always veiling the full view of God's face or God's glory. Then said I, then said I. You know, after I saw that, then I responded and said, Woe is me, for I am undone. One time a person asked me, one time he says, uh, Brother Jeff, uh, I appreciate your ability to answer Bible questions, and I've got one question for you. I'd like to know, what was the name of Isaiah's horse? You know, I didn't even know he had a horse. I said, ah, I'm not quite sure. He said, it's is me. He said, whoa, is me. <laughs> I said, well, um, I, I think that's a stretch. I, I, I don't uh, know if that's sound hermeneutics. But that's what Isaiah said. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. Now, if we are men of unclean lips, if we are a people of unclean lips, that means we have an unclean heart. Because Jesus taught us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. So you can tell what's going on in the heart of a man by the things that he says. And that's not being a prude. That's not being too judgmental. That's just being biblical. You can tell what's important to a person by what they talk about or what they discuss or, or, or the, the way in which they present what they're talking about. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. What he's saying is, the reason I've got unclean lips is because there's something missing in, inside me. There's something missing in my heart. I dwell in the midst of a people. He's not just... Uh, He's not just saying the problem is in his own heart. He's looking around to a nation whose heart is not right with God. He's looking around to a church, a congregation, whose heart is not right before God. And he's saying, I dwell in their midst. And then he says, mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Mine God has allowed me to know the truth of who the true God is. Then... Notice the sequential nature of this rendering because it's, it's, there's a time frame going on here. It's like a motion picture. It's like a video machine. He's, he's, he's giving a sequential uh, account of his experience with God. Then I said I'm a sinner, a man of unclean lips because I have a problem in my own heart. And I've seen the King of glory, the King, the Lord of hosts. Then, sequential, flew one of the seraphim unto me. Now, one of these seraphim that was flying above the throne of God, remember, we described him. Now he's coming down. And his feet are covered, his face is covered, and his wings are able to convey him to Isaiah. Now, watch what happened. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. 
see, Brother Herman, you're not the only one that has tongs. Last night he held a match with a tong. And we won't discuss the nature of that. But, but here are tongs. Here are, are tongs that are taken from the altar of God. I realize there's different uh, ideas on uh, what heaven looks like and what the throne room is and the city of Jerusalem and the te- heavenly temple and heavenly altar. I realize there's differences of opinion on that, but I don't want you to miss the point. Isaiah has seen something by God's grace that made him aware of his sinfulness. When we become aware of our sinfulness, Brother Jack, that's when we seek salvation. I tell people this a lot because I believe in evangelism, not just overseas, but I believe in a door-to-door evangelism. I believe in taking every opportunity to tell people about Jesus Christ and the truth of sovereign grace. I look for those opportunities every day. And I've heard a lot of different excuses. I've heard a lot of different things that people, a lot of different ideas about who God is and what God is. And I say this to my congregation in Temple, Texas. I say this... uh, I'm having a hard time finding somebody that's lost in America. I don't have that problem overseas. But I have have a hard time in America of anyone that is really lost or considers themselves lost. Because they say things like, I know I'm going to be in heaven at the end because God is just too loving to ever send anybody uh, to the bad place. I hear that quite often. Uh, I hear things like, I know I'm going to heaven because my mom and dad are Christians. I was raised in a Christian home. I hear that very often. But I want you to realize something that Isaiah perhaps didn't realize until Isaiah 6 chronicled it. Remember, Isaiah is an Israelite. Isaiah is a Jew. Isaiah had grown up with the law. He had grown up with the Aaronic priesthood. His parents, as dutiful Jews, would offer a sacrifice in his behalf every year. He would be a participant. He would be one of the observers of the high priest once a year taking the lamb and confessing the sins of the nation over the, over the ram and uh, slaying the ram. He, he would, on the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, he would be observing that as a young man all of his life. But for the first time in his experience, he realized that he had to be responsible. He had to be accountable for his own sin. And it's hard to get people to cross that bridge, isn't it? Isn't that your experience? Haven't you had people tell you, well, I'm not really that bad a guy. I mean, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. I made good grades in school. I've done well in business. I, I, you know, I, I'm a good neighbor. I'm a good husband. I'm a good wife. I'm a good uh, this, that, and the other. Why would God even think about sending somebody like me to hell? Well, maybe Isaiah was in that camp. But when he saw the glory of God, when he saw the holiness of God, the perfection of God, that's when he says, you know what? I'm a man of unclean lips. And you know what? I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What is the answer? You see, until someone understands or has a comprehension of their sinful estate, you can't talk to them about a Savior. They're really not interested. If a man is not hungry... I'll guarantee you he's not interested in you going to buy him a steak or going to buy him a hamburger. The other day, there was a a homeless man, and he was standing there, and, you know, we'll work for food, that type of thing, and, man, he looked bad. (laughs) Uh, Bless his heart. I stopped at the light, and I looked at this man. 
And I just rolled down my window and I says, buddy, get in this truck. I'll, I'll take you over here to Burger King right now and I'll, I'll get you the biggest burger they got and, and any, anything you want. He said, man, he said, I, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in your money. I said, well, why, why are you interested in my money? He said, because I want to go buy a beer. I said, see you later. I was just going by the sign you were holding in your hand. We'll work for food, you know. I was just judging your need by what your sign says. But he was honest with me. He said, buddy, I don't, I don't need anything to eat. I couldn't convince him. I could bring him a, a, a ribeye steak, and he wouldn't take it because he wasn't hungry. You, can't, uh, you, 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 you cannot feed somebody that's not hungry. You can't give water to somebody that's not thirsty. Uh, Brother Ben, Dr. Benjamin here can tell you that uh, the only people that he can benefit that comes into his uh, care as a physician are those that are really sick. They're the ones that want to go talk to him. Well, it's the same way in the salvation of our soul. If we do not recognize that we're sinners, if we don't recognize that we're separated from the presence of God, we're separated from the promise of God, we're separated from the power of God, and there is no glory in our life, in our church, in our nation. There's no remedy. So when God called Isaiah, He called him to give a particular message. And it's not a popular message. Even today, it's still not popular. But he's got this live coal, and, he, and, and, and have you ever noticed where he put the coal? He didn't put the coal on the feet. He didn't put the coal on the head. He didn't put the coal in the bosom. He put the coal where the problem was, where he acknowledged his sins. He touched the coal to his lips. Now, I don't know, if you, I don't know how many of you have ever been burnt. I've, I've had experiences with burns, and I can, I can tell you uh, uh, it, it's no fun. It, it, it's no fun. It's a very painful thing to be burned with a cutting torch or something like that. To be burnt or to touch a hot iron. Have you ever done that? A hot place and a blister rises up immediately. It's a very painful thing. What he's describing is the character of repentance. Repentance is a painful thing. Revival is a painful thing. There's no such thing as a pain-free revival. It, it just doesn't exist. When the holiness of God is presented to the people... And they recognize it is true and they see their unholiness. It can be a very painful journey to restoring that fellowship with a holy God. But it's supposed to be. So he took the coal and he touched it to the very area of the problem under consideration, which was his lips. Because he acknowledged, I am a man of unclean lips. And he says, uh, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Now watch this. Watch this language. <laughs> um, the Lord is saying, Who shall I send? Who's going to tell people the truth about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men? And you know what Isaiah said? Isaiah said, Here I am, Lord. Send me. I'm ready. You know, when somebody sees Christ in His glory and in His beauty and in His wonderful position as King and Lord, how can we say no to Him? If he says go, we're supposed to say, yes, sir, we're going to go. Well, verse 9, he says, go and tell this people. Now, go and tell them how good they are. Go and tell them how important they are. Go and tell them uh, God can't do a thing without you, son. No. Go and tell this people. Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. And make their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest they see and their, uh, 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 with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? 
He said, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Now, that, that, that's why I took you to Isaiah 6. There be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. What do you think he's talking about? He's talking about people that at one time knew God, people that at one time were called by the name of God, people that actually claimed to love God, and yet now they have forsaken Him. They have forsaken His Word. They have forsaken His altar. They have forgotten to pray. They have forgotten to serve. They have forgotten to worship. And In other words, it's a secondary element. It's, it's a, well, I'll serve the Lord when it's convenient for me to do so. And we have surrendered so many blessings on the altar of convenience. We've surrendered so many things on the altar of things that might appear to be good. But what we've done, we've chosen something good at the expense of what's best. We have chosen to do something in our lives that may be good or we may consider good. But because we did not follow the Lord and because we didn't regard Him... In our decision, we have forfeited God's best for what we considered good. Does that make sense? I'm guilty of that. I don't know about you. But I, in my own life, I'm guilty of that as well. But what is the solution? I mean, is there hope? You know, is there, is there hope in revival? Is there hope in God? Because God's promise is still real. It's still true. God's power is still there. And what about God's presence? Is there a reason God's presence isn't in the midst of His people? I believe there is. I don't believe it's because God is mean and wants to make you suffer and wants to make you hurt and all of this kind of stuff. But I believe that God's presence, His promise and His power are going to come to the lives of prepared souls. Uh, What are we doing to prepare for revival? It's kind of like a farmer. You ask a farmer, uh, do you believe it's going to rain this year? I sure do. Well, have you planted your crop? No. Have you plowed your field? No. Have you took all the weeds out, broken up the fallow ground? Have you done those type of things? Uh, No, I haven't. Then, brother, you don't believe it's going to rain. If you believe it's going to rain, where's your umbrella? If you believe it's going to rain, why haven't you prepared your field? My point is this. In the church of God, sometimes we act that way. Yeah, I believe. I certainly believe that God is going to revive us. I believe that God is able. I believe that God loves us and and God's uh, presence is what we seek and what we desire. Well, let me ask you, what are you doing to prepare your soul for revival? Now, of course, we we don't have a a time to go through all five seasons of revival in the history of Israel. I wish we did because it's a powerful study. But there's something that is very, very consistent in all five accounts. And this morning, if you would allow me, I'd like you to go back to Second Chronicles 34 and let's focus on one of those periods of revival. The things that we're going to discover in the reign of Josiah, you're going to find are exactly the same in the reign of Jehoshaphat, in the reign of Asa, in the reign of Hezekiah and Uzziah. You're going to find the same, uh, same points. And I believe that if we're ever going to um, experience revival in America today, If this church is ever going to experience revival, these principles are going to have to be in place. They're going to have to be. These are non-negotiable elements 
that bring revival not only to the soul but also to the people and to the church and to the nation. In Second Chronicles chapter 34, I want to notice, uh, and I'm going to have to step through this pretty quick, <clears throat> but here's Josiah's account, okay? And uh, in verse 3, in the eighth year of his reign, uh, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. How about that? So when he's 16 years old, how about that? Uh, somebody says, well, God can't use teenagers. God can't use young people to bring about revival. Oh, really? Then forget about the story of Josiah, because Josiah is a teenager. And in the eighth year of his reign, 16 years old, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. Stop right there. If you're taking notes, I want you to see him as a 16-year-old seeking the Lord. He's seeking the Lord. What did Jesus say about the seeker? What did he say about the ASK formula? Ask, seek, knock. Ask and ye shall what? What's the promise? Ask and ye shall receive. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be open unto you. Can I submit something to you in all the candor and honesty of my, my heart? I believe one reason primitive Baptists are not experiencing revival today is because we're not seeking it. We're not really seeking revival. We're seeking a status quo uh, existence where we come to church, worship, and go home, and the rest of our life and all of the compartments of our experience in this life are disassociated from God or from God's house and from God's Word. Josiah saw something missing, even in his youth. He saw something missing. And what was that? The presence of God. He sought revival. So here he is, 16 years old, and he's seeking revival. Then we come to the 12th year of his reign, which would bring him to about 20 years of age. And, um, and he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. Now, what this is uh, talking about, he's talking about purging, purging the land of idolatry, purging the land from sin. Now, somebody said, Brother Jeff, I don't have idols. I mean, with that stuff, that's what they do over in India. You know, they've got the, 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 uh, the, 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 the chubby guy that's bald-headed, and he's bending his legs, and he's like this, and they call him Buddha and, uh, you know, Lord. And, and they pat him on the head or they burn some incense in the, the dish that he's holding or whatever it might be. Now, that's idolatry. But I'm going to tell you something, friends, even though that's idolatry. There's idols that we can raise up in our own hearts. There's idols. There, the biggest idol that we have is ourselves. See, Josiah was a great example of someone that is seeking the presence of God in revival and he's doing it in a genuine attitude. He's, he's, he's not wanting the holy God of heaven to come and be present in a sinful life. I'll tell you one reason we don't want revival in our culture today and in our churches today is because we love our sins too, many, too much. William Baxter, who was an old Puritan preacher, said it this way. He says, you and your Savior will never be one until you and your sins are two. You and your Savior will never be one, joined together, walking together in harmony and communion, until you and your sins are two. So Josiah is not pointing at the sins of other people. What he's doing, he's looking in his own heart, and he's recognizing that he hasn't been serious about seeking the Lord. Then he's using his position of influence to make an impact upon the rest of the culture. Now that sounds kind of familiar. Salt, hmm. light, hmm. 
influence. Mm -hmm. Well, Josiah is going to purge sin from the nation of Judah. And, uh, and, and this is going to bring about repentance. He breaks down the idols. And so many, uh, there's a lot of good reading here. But in verse 8, now in the 18th year, here, he, here he's 26 years old, right? In the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maasiah, the governor of the city, and uh, Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. What is he doing? He's repairing something that's broken. He's repairing the house of the Lord. He's coming. He's bringing his convictions that God has given him through his word, through his truth. And he's bringing it to the sphere of the house of the Lord. Do you understand this is talking about the temple? This is talking about where people, God's people worship. He was looking at where God's people worship and he's saying, we've got a problem here. I'm going to show you something about this. We've got a problem here. I'm going to ask you a question. When you study Matthew chapter 21 and you see Jesus riding upon the foal of an ass into the city of Jerusalem, what is the very first place that he went to when he came into the city of Jerusalem right before he went to the cross? Remember, his Passion Week began when he rode into the city of Jerusalem in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Where was the first place he went? He went to the house of God. Remember what he did to the tables of the money changers? Do you remember? What did he do? He turned them over. He said, my father's house is a house of prayer and you made it into a den of thieves. Because, see, they were making money off of the exchanges. See, see, the temple wouldn't accept Roman images. They wouldn't accept Roman coins. Roman coins had Caesar's image on it. So they said, no, we, we can't accept that in the temple. So what we're going to do, what a deal. It, you know, it sounds kind of like Obamacare. <laughs> what a deal. We're, we're going to make a good deal for you. We're going to take your Roman currency and we're, we're going to give you Jewish gold that doesn't have images on it. And, of course, there will be a, a small interest on that coin. And, of course, it was not just a small interest. It was a, a large interest. They were ripping off poor people. They were enslaving a whole culture for gold and silver. And Jesus came to the temple and He says, you know, I'm not going to put up with it. This is my Father's house and you have changed it. You have robbed this place of the glory that it was designed to maintain. And Josiah saw that. And he says, boy, we've got some work to do at the church. We've got, to do, we've got some work to do right in the house of the Lord. We're going to do some repair work. We're going to repair the house of the Lord. I don't have time to develop all of this, but, but follow me. And uh, drop down, uh, for time's sake, drop down to verse 14. Watch what happens. And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Somebody, some people actually say, a lot of commentaries, Gill, Matthew Henry, many uh, notable commentaries say that this was the actual stones that were delivered by the hand of Moses. And it wouldn't surprise me at this period of time if that was a, a great possibility. He found the book of law of the Lord given by Moses. This would not only be the, the tables themselves, but it would also be what we call the Pentateuch, what we call the book of the five books of Moses. Which, which are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and what? And what? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Uh, these are called the book of, Moses, book, book of Moses. Well, it wouldn't surprise me if these were authentic, if these were the original. 
um, manuscripts. And Hilgiah, <coughs> Hilgiah answered and said unto Shaphan, verse 15, the scribe, I have found the book of the law of the Lord. I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book unto Shaphan. And Shaphan carried the book to the king. Shaphan did exactly what he was supposed to do. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. He took it to the king. He took it to the one that uh, could make a difference in the nation. And all that was committed to thy servants, they will do. He brought to the king word back again saying, all that, the, all that was committed to thy servants, they do it. In other words, there's a commitment here. There's a renewal of commitment here. See, sometimes, children of God, I'm, t- I'm just telling you, we get cold. And we grow indifferent to the work of God. We, we grow indifferent to the church of God, the worship of God, the word of God, the, 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 the uh, service of God. And we begin to get cold. And our cold hearts, you know, sometimes we, we just don't want to hear preaching. We, sometimes we, we don't want to sing songs. Sometimes we don't feel like praying. And when we do pray, it feels half-hearted, and, and, it, it, and it's as though our prayers don't go above the ceiling. Have you ever gone through any seasons like that? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, there's a remedy. There's an answer. And that answer is a renewal of commitment. We're saying, Lord, we know we've erred. We know we've sinned. We want to turn from that sin and consecrate ourselves to you, and we want to commit to you. We're going to spend that uh, 30 minutes in the morning and that 30 minutes in the evening on our knees reading the Word of God and praying, and we're going to commit to that. We're going to commit to uh, being as faithful a church member as I know how to be. We're, we're going to commit to meeting with the church every time the door opens. We're going to commit to supporting the church with our finances. We're going to commit to uh, strengthening the church with our labor. That's the attitude that we find in Josiah. Josiah says, okay, I'll tell you what. You tell me what God's Word says, and I'm going to commit to you. I'll do the very best I can to uphold it. Renewal of commitment. Verse 19. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the law that he rent his clothes. See, he responded to the reading of the Word. He responded to the Word of God. He didn't just ignore it. He he, he didn't do what we do. A lot of times we categorize it. We... Uh, uh, we, we put the Word of God, uh, we apply the Word of God to someone else. How many times have we been to church and heard a message like this and said, Boy, I wish old brother so-and-so was here to hear this one. How many times do we do that? Oh, I wish old so-and-so was here because they need this. Well, let me tell you something, friends. You need it too. I need it. And God in His providence brought us together to hear it. I want you to remember that. The king had the right idea. He responded to the Word of God as it applied to him, himself. He actually internalized God's Word to himself, and he confessed his sins before the Lord. Listen to this in the same chapter, chapter 34, verse 30. And the king went up into the house of the Lord. Are you with me? And the king went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of the Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small, notice, old and young. Somebody says, well, the church is really for old people, and we're hoping that the young people will finally one day take the place of the old. I don't believe that. I I believe that the church is for the old and the young at the same time, great and the small. And by the way, can I say something right here on this juncture? Sometimes the older members of the church are reluctant to do things in the church that will encourage the young people and allow them to grow. 
Uh, I know I know right now I can tell you uh, several ministers that are just utterly opposed to uh, things like Mariah Camp, where young people get together and fellowship in Christian harmony and, and have a good time. Uh, they're against singing schools where young people can get together and learn something how to how to sing and and and, and get to know each other better. They're uh, they're they're opposed to any Saturday uh, gatherings of the young people where they can come together and eat pizza and play volleyball and baseball or whatever they want to do. And because after all, that's that's just not uh, that that's just not the way I grew up in the church. Therefore, it's it's not good for them. But to me, that's cutting our own nose off despite our face. I believe that, that, that there are times when the church needs to confront changes uh, from what we grew up with or what we uh, endured as young members of the church because the next generation, is a little, they're different than we are. And we can greatly discourage young people by thumbing our nose and saying, we just don't do that around here. Uh, better be careful of that. Better be careful. Josiah wasn't that way. Josiah brought the great and the small, the young and the old, together. And he read in the ears of all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. It was Where was it found? Where was it found? It was found in the house of the Lord. What do you want when you come to the house of God? You want the teaching of the word of the Lord. Now, I love that. That's an example of good leadership. That's an example for us to follow in our day and time. Verse 31, And the king stood in his place. And made a covenant before the Lord. Look at his leadership here. Look at his leadership. He made a covenant before the Lord. To walk after the Lord. To keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes. With all his heart and with all his soul. To perform the words of the covenant. Which are written in the book of the Lord. That is the renewal of covenant relationship with God. And I'm going to tell you. That's what needs to happen today. That's what needs to happen with you and with me. We need a renewal. We need a revival. Because Josiah knew that apart from the presence and the promise and the power of God, God would not be glorified. God will never be glorified apart from that. So he's begging God for his presence with them. And notice the last part of verse 33. In all his days they departed not from following the Lord and the God of their fathers. What a tremendous commentary. How would you like that to be said about you? Yeah, I knew old Caleb. I tell you what, all the days of his life he sought to serve and please the Lord. I knew Lucas. All the days of his life he sought to serve the Lord. And he encouraged other people to do it too. What a great what 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 a great way to remember to be remembered. Now I uh I want uh I'm I'm gonna have to leave this because I've I've got just a few minutes left in our study this morning. And I want to get to something else that, that to me is so powerful, and I hope it is for you. I want you to go with me to the book of Haggai, is minor prophet, close to the end of the Old Testament, Haggai. And Haggai is, is a prophet of the Lord, just like Isaiah was. And, and Haggai wrote something here under the influence of the Holy Spirit that we need to understand if we're going to understand the Old Testament principle of revival. It's going to always involve... It's going to always involve the presence, the power, and the promises of God. It's always going to involve that. It's always going to be seeking God's presence, not for our benefit, but for His glory. It's always going to have that. It's always going to be associated with the spirit of repentance and turning from sin to serve the true and the living God. That's called sanctification and consecration. 
Haggai says something here. God says there's a day coming when I will shake, verse 7, in Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, I will shake all nations, all nations, not just Judah, not just Israel. I will shake all nations, America, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory. Listen to it carefully. I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. And I I truly believe he's pointing to the coming of Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace. Now, what's it about? It's about the glory of God. When we study the Old Testament tabernacle, the design of which was revealed to Moses when he was in Sinai, after they completed the Old Testament tabernacle in Exodus chapter 48, what did God do? When they finished that work and, and finished that tabernacle, that tent, and finished it just exactly the way He had ordained it to be, the Bible says the glory of the Lord came down and filled the tent. That's revival. The presence of God came down and filled that tabernacle. And it's called Shekinah, the flame of God. It's interesting. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when they completed Solomon's temple, remember that? And there was the dedication to the temple, remember that? At the end of that dedication and prayer that Solomon offered on behalf of the nation, the Bible says the glory of God came down and filled the house. Nobody nobody could even stand up. Everybody had to get on their face. Why? Because of the glory of God. The glory of God filled the tabernacle. The glory of God filled the uh, temple, Solomon's temple. And here in the prophecy of Haggai, he's talking about the rebuilding of the temple that was reconstructed under the ministry of Ezra. He says God's glory would attend that temple as well. And the glory of the second temple would actually uh, uh, eclipse the glory of the first. And that's a type and a shadow of the coming of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I believe in Matthew 17 when Jesus was in the Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember He was there talking to Elijah and talking to Moses. Peter, James, and John saw a part of the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of who He is. Not only as the Son of Man, but as the Son of God. And, and, and in one being, Jesus Christ. What glory. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he told the disciples in Luke chapter 24, he says, oh, this is what I want you to do. Tarry in Jerusalem to be endued with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, we find him going to Jerusalem, joying in the resurrected glory of Jesus Christ. Remember, they witnessed his ascension up into glory, sitting down upon the throne. The angel comes to him and says, what are you standing here for? You got work to do. Why are you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus that is taken up from you shall in like manner return again with that promise. He said, go back to the city. Go, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise. Then comes Acts 2. Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost. What happened? What happened? The promise, the presence, the power of God came among the church and descended upon every member of the church and filled the house with His glory. And they never got over it. They never got over what they saw. They never got over what they experienced. They never got over what they felt in their hearts on that occasion. And they went everywhere, according to Acts chapter 8, verse 6, 
telling everybody about Jesus. I'm going to tell you something, friends. When true revival is experienced among God's people, when we do sense a need for His power and His promise and His presence, I believe that's when He's magnified. That's, that's preparing our hearts for revival. Looking at our own sins. Look, looking at our own faults. Not looking at the fault of our brother. Not looking at the fault of our sister. Not, not, not trying to cast blame or assign guilt or uh, condemnation to anyone. But looking at ourselves and saying, you know, the problem is with me. Like that old song, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. You remember that song? That's right. When I understand that the things that God's Word is teaching about revival are very personal in nature. True revival begins in our hearts. What are you seeking this morning? That's my question. What, what, what is your pursuit? I hope we can follow the example of the Old Testament, the, the example of Josiah, and we can be serious about our commitment to Him and serious about God using our life for His glory in His kingdom work here below. That's what I believe Haggai and the Old Testament prophets were leading us to. Pointing us to Christ. Have you ever wondered how the early church in a period of less than 30 years, 30 years, without TV, without telephones, without the iPhone, can you imagine? Uh, without the computer, without satellite technology, airplanes, ships, and all of the things that we, submarines, and we, all the things that we have uh, at our disposal, in 30 years they permeated the whole of the Roman Empire with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. How was that possible? It was because of revival. Their hearts were revived and their usefulness restored and their witness was enhanced. And I'm praying that that will happen in our generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together in your word. Thank you for the congregation today. And I, I appreciate both the young and the old that are here. And I ask that it would make a difference in each of our lives. Lord, that we would examine ourselves and, and, and understand that we... Uh, are the ones that stand in need of prayer. We are the ones that need your presence, your power, and your, uh, your wonderful promises in Jesus Christ. We need that. And we need to respond in an appropriate manner. Help us to repent of known sin in our life. Help us to confess that and experience the forgiveness that is there through the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and Father, restore us to usefulness in the work that you have called us to do. Help us to be the people that you called us to be so we can do the work that you've called us to do. Send revival. Send the fires of your heavenly altar into the very altar of our soul. Ignite us, dear Lord, and help us to shine for your glory. And it's in the precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.